Hello, everyone, and welcome back to All Over the Place Exercises in E Pluribus Unum AOTP. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Provosnik, co host Jim Culver, and Marty Zamora jumping in soon enough. And there's you can't get much more soon enough than that. Hello, Jim. Hello, Eric. How you doing, man? I'm phenomenal. I'm so excited to have what we, we've got an author on today. I'm very excited, a novelist, if you will depending on how you wanted to find things. David Morrell, whose novel First Blood, which was released way back in 1972, and then uh, 10 years later became, of course, uh, First Blood, uh, featuring uh, Stallone as John Rambo, who was just a small, obscure indie movie, I believe. I know, exactly. Actually, it was uh, obscure at first. That movie had, had so many ups and downs before it finally got produced. And uh, of course, no one really remembers that he's John Rambo. He's just, the name just became so ubiquitous. He's just, he's just Rambo and people know who you're talking about. And people don't usually remember the movie is called First Blood. They just think of it as Rambo One. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. But, but Dave, David's done so much more. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to him about, uh, especially uh, he jumped in and did some comic book writing starting in 2006. And he went through what he called, and I'm, as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a brilliant trifecta from the Marvel world. He did some issues of, he started with Captain America, then he did uh, Spider-Man, and then Wolverine. So he's got, as far as I'm concerned, those are the three, well, they're my three favorite characters in the Marvel Universe. But uh, yeah, he, he did uh, a few issues of those. And uh, he's got uh, so many other novels. The Brotherhood of the Rose, Creepers is a movie that's uh, uh, currently in post-production. Hopefully later this year. We don't know. We'll get some more information from David on that. But uh, yeah, this guy's just, he's been writing nonstop for over 50 years now. And it, we got a writer, an author, a novelist. I'm excited. And we also have Marty Zamora with us. Hey, Marty. <laughs> there I am. <laughs> Welcome back, Mr. Z. Just just left uh, just left my, uh, my uh, location uh, over in the Bronx of my dry cleaners, and I'm here. <laughs> very nice it's a, it's, a, it's a bronx tale so yeah jim you're about to say we've got what i was gonna say speaking of comic books um i i just recently heard an announcement that they were that they were making a uh a comic book version of a prequel to rambo called called first kill um and by uh by uh, richard meyer and then another another writer is is doing comic version of uh Colonel Troutman's origin story. I remember reading about this. Yes, yes. I, so I, uh, I'd be very curious to hear did... oh, go David's ahead. Uh, take on that. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, now, are those the same people who did the the Expendables comic book? Am I, if I'm remembering correctly, it is. Yeah, they did Expendables Go to Hell, and they did uh, the Jawbreakers. Uh, okay, which, which is a a pretty good. They're very. They're both uh, very military based. Uh, writ written by by an Iraq and Afghanistan war veteran and. Uh, so they kind of have that mentality and uh, very, very interesting reads. So there's actually good stuff to read and good comic books coming about. I love it. What a concept. I know. And uh, no, I'm, I also, did you guys have a chance to uh, read the latest column from Mark Tapson over at uh, Culture Warrior? What about Disney? Or, or, or Substack. Uh, no, this is uh, one, uh, he just uh, dropped it this morning on his no, Facebook page, but yeah, it's, uh, oh, I you, especially with, with your, your son, I think you're going to enjoy the, the read on that one. And, um, uh, it's just talking about, you know, uh, boys needing heroes, literary heroes as inspiration. So I, I think it's definitely a great topic. And just, it's sad when you, you hear, you know, just boys don't want to read 
or they're just they're not as into reading as, as uh, girls and later in, in, into adulthood women are with reading. Just not that they're not inspired to read. Mark Mark does a great job yeah. talking about that. So I can I, I can attest yeah. to. Um, I was out breaking bones and doing other dumb boy stuff, and I didn't I didn't get a lot of reading in post puberty. Hopefully, they were your own bones. <laughs> yeah, they well. <laughs> Post puberty, they certainly were not, but uh, yeah, I, you know, doing boy stuff, playing football, riding dirt bikes, uh, skateboards. All so I didn't, I didn't read a lot, but man, I sure loved it when I did. And I, I guess it was a matter of maturity. I was a bit of a meathead. Well, I am a bit of a meathead, so there you go. Stop. Uh, one one of my favorite readers. Our producer, Christine, in the fray here. And Christine, I, th- I hope you'll have a yes. chance to l- look at that uh, column as well from uh, Mark. Um, I have not had an opportunity to look at, at that quite yet. I've been uh, focusing on getting our guest in the room. Okay. So hopefully he's got the link um, and can join us in just a moment here. He's got the groove, baby. He's got the motion. Yep. Go mm-hmm. hit that link and he'll be causing a commotion. Yeah. Let's see. We'll see. I promise I will not co-opt any Madonna lyrics for the rest of the show. Yeah. And of course I may interject a little bit more today, uh, being an English major myself. Um, I've already had a little bit of discussion with him this morning about the, the, um, the plight of English majors and universities. So we may, um, we may jump into that a little bit if we have time. Always a pleasure having more people on all over the place. And since, and you're our producer. You're you're our friend. You're, it's, it's everything. Jump, jump on in, baby. Thanks. Right, now, Luke, now the do- the dogs. You know, I Marty. Are you a dog whisperer? Can you can we have uh, her dogs, Loopy or Mabel, jump in? Would you be able to translate? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, bring bring your dogs around the corner just to make make sure that you know, the, the translations are correct. Now, and what I just heard was, "Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me." So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yep. That's all that is. That's good dog talk. Yeah. It actually was your ignorance, something or other. The sliding door is not open right now. <laughs> I oh, have to go. Definitely pay attention to me so you're not cleaning up after me. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm doing this. Favorite Rambo movie. You guys talk. Go. Well, now mine's pretty simple. Um, uh, I liked everything about it. And since I, I think I'm a bit older than you, Jim maybe quite a bit. So I was in 72. Well, no, I guess the movie was in 76, whatever. The novel was in 72. But when I saw it, I was a little older than you, I think, right? Yeah, I wasn't born yet. So you were by default. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. It was my first sort of uh, taste of that sort of hero, anti-hero thing. And not to mention the cast. I mean, (laughs) you, you couldn't have had a better pairing there. Those two were just Great together. Sorry, Brian, Brian Dennehy and, and Stallone. Brian Dennehy was a real beast back then. I mean, you know, he's uh, maybe not in the best shape, but he looked like he could have crushed still, even Stallone under his boot if he wanted to. Yeah. Barrel chested. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah. So mine would be uh, be number two, just purely for the 80s nostalgia factor growing up in that era. It was kind of the ultimate considered kind of the ultimate action movie at the time and just so iconic, obviously a, a, a massive deviation theme wise from the, the first story and, and what it was about, but just an overall amazing film. 
direction by by uh, George George Cosmatos, who who later made uh, Tombstone. Writing by James Cameron of all people, and just absolutely just insane battle scenes and special effects. It was just this this amazing uh, action story. And of course, you know, growing up with a a, a Vietnam veteran dad, uh, just being able to see this movie where a, where a, a vet goes back and essentially refights the war, I think was was uh, was very. Um, I don't know, mentally cleansing, shall we say, <laughs> for a certain generation. And but again, just just as as, as a purely as an action movie, it's just uh, an incredible film. All right, you convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're so different. I feel like the first and second Rambo movies are just apples and oranges. They really don't feel like they're part of the same film series. Um, yeah, all all the the other ones feel like sequels to number two, but none of them feel like sequels to number one. This is true. Now, my my second favorite one is the one where he goes to Russia to train. Um, <laughs> and I think that's one where he fought, he fought Apollo Creed. <laughs> the famous Russian Rambo. boxer, Apollo Creed. Yeah. Rambo Balboa. Or John Balboa. And, and, and by Apollo Creed, I, I, uh, I accidentally meant to say, uh, oh, actually, I, that was an accident. I meant to say Clubber Lang. That would have been funnier, but uh, yeah, Eric Provosky. As, as we learned on a, on a recent taping, can't even remember certain things known as the Holy Grail as an item that Indiana Jones was going after. But yeah. the joys of being in my fifties—it it, does—it doesn't get it all better, does it, Marty? In terms of remembering things, it does not. <laughs> Imagine that it, it gets worse. No, not even with the lion's mane mushroom. We, we these are the things we have to yeah. have to accept. So, yeah. Now, have, have either of you guys read the First Blood novel? I have. I have not. You, Jim? No. No, I haven't. And my understanding is it's kind of uh, his intention with the novel was more based on uh, kind of the civil unrest, and and the movie did cover that as well. But there was the, the novel was more about you know, all the riots and the, and the, the Kent state thing and all the, all the sort of unrest that was going on for that kind of thing. And, and uh, also at the and big spoiler alert, he dies at the end of the book Rambo does. And they even okay. shot, a, they even shot there. There's a deleted scene on, on the DVD or Blu-ray, whichever one you're watching. There's a deleted scene where Troutman, Richard Crenna's character shoots him. He takes, he's like, you created me. I want you to take me out. You started it, you finish it. No kidding. Which, and that's why you get a totally different tone heading into Rambo First Blood Part Two and the, and the subsequent ones. Yeah, that sure, ending would have sure. fit in perfectly with the tone of the first movie. It would have been a, it would have fit in just right. And, you know, obviously yeah. the sequels would have been different if, if Rambo was a zombie the whole time. But uh... <laughs> I definitely recommend the book. And it, uh, it's set in Kentucky, not the beautiful British Columbia mountains that they were uh, filming the movie. Also, part part of the whole for ten years that script kicked around, and uh, initially, uh, I believe it was Sidney Pollack was going to be directing Steve McQueen as John Rambo, but oh, Steve wow. McQueen at the time was mid forties, and so it, it couldn't really fit in with the timeline of you know what John Rambo was. So, and uh, Paul Newman, I don't know how long he was attached to it, but I think Steve McQueen, well, Steve McQueen's just eternally cool. I, I can imagine him doing anything, especially. But he was especially drawn in I, uh, from what. I understand to the the motorcycle that he rode through that Rambo escaped on from the from the jail cell. 
Oh. And, and in the novel, he is completely nude when he escapes the jail and, and starts riding through town and stealing the motorcycle. Well, you can't really you can't really do that in the cinema, can you? Well, well you, can't. you get a different rating with it, when the hangy down part much, of the sway. Much different rating, yes. And uh, well, that was something else I I, I learned uh, when and in you know with, with the uh, director's commentary and uh, David Morrell's commentary as well is that the movie was originally at the time it came out eighty two you had PG and oh, I was G P G R or X. That's all you had at the time. And they were waffling between, you know, it was a PG movie until they started introducing that, you know, dropping the F-bombs and, you know, they would have been riding nude, of course. But yeah, and uh, there's there's a bit of lament on the part of our our soon-to-be guest. He seemed disappointed that action movies from that, that kind of set the, the template for the action movies that followed. And by the time you get to Lethal Weapon, you've got, you know, dropping F-bombs constantly and just, you know, and certainly the violence in uh, the movie uh, in First Blood that transferred, you know, just trickled down as action movies progressed throughout the 80s and beyond. I'm going to invite as a speaker. They've sent, uh, we've sent the invite. And Mr. Morell, do we have you? <laughs> yes, through the electronic adventure system, I am, I am here. I've been listening well, to you guys, but I, I've been saying, hey, 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 but I haven't, no one's listening to me. <laughs> hey, hey, what can we do? We're finally going to do it. And David Morell, uh, w- welcome to our little corner of the, the fun sanity world known as All Over the Place. Yes, which, uh, Eric, which has already started. <laughs> with getting with getting well, connected so, so you, you you've heard us talking uh you know, i have jim, yes. jim with us and marty as well and christine thank you for all you're doing to get get us linked in here with david but yeah you heard us talking about you know just the evolution of yeah uh, first first blood the novel to you know the 10 years first blood the film and yes you know, i get for what would you i mean you know, we obviously steve mcqueen is just a little bit too old for the role but would you would you have liked to have seen Steve McQueen in that? Aside from that, that age difference, well, maybe any difference? I've written about uh, Steve a lot actually, and I used to write for a, a video magazine called Perfect Vision, and I did a lot of pieces about Steve and actually collected them in a book of mine called Stars in My Eyes, my love affair with books, movies, and music. And anyway, I love Steve McQueen. He was a terrible person, uh, but. <laughs> He, he was. He was really. He was. He was damaged, and he mm-hmm. is very difficult to get around, along with. Uh, but he was perhaps because of his narcissism, the ideal movie star, uh, because it was a love affair between him and the camera, and he knew how the camera presented him. Uh, and uh, I mean, few few actors had the. I mean, he wasn't a great actor necessarily, but he was a great screen presence. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 to use an example, uh, I had many conversations with Richard Crenna, uh, who plays uh, Colonel Trotman in the movies. Richard was a wonderful guy, really, really, uh, really, you'd just love to have any conversation with him and not at all stuck on himself. And, and uh, we were talking one day about the movies and his intense respect for Sylvester Stallone as a movie actor. And uh, I'll put it in this context that he, 
he, uh, Richard had a long career. He was a kid actor and, and, you know, I forget he was in his forties, I think when he was doing the first blood movies. And he said that in his long career, there were only two actors uh, and the female, uh, uh, use actor too, but we're talking about male actors who really knew what they were doing in front of the camera. And that was Sylvester and in addition, uh, Steve McQueen. And, um, and so Steve, um, um, had been with Richard in a movie called The Sand Pebbles. Uh, in any case, he just admired Steve's use of, without much dialogue, the eyes, uh, the, um, the, um, uh, way he used props, the way he knew how to put himself in front of a, you know, just to, to upstage everybody, if you like. And he said, and, and Sly has that same, uh, same ability. So, uh, uh, you know, that it, it's interesting that, that, uh, that uh, McQueen might at one time have been Rambo uh, and that, you know, Richard was somehow, you know, I don't think he knew about this, but kind of subliminally linking them. And I always, my, my favorite thing about Steve McQueen, one of the first things I learned about him was in Magnificent Seven, you know, I want to talk about, you know, running that camera to himself. He was always in the background because you know, he wasn't the star of the movie, obviously, one of the cast, but uh, important cast member. But he's in the background trying to draw attention to himself, which was just ticking Yul Brenner off to no end. Well, it's the hat. It's the famous story of the hat. Now, Steve has maybe... Uh, 10 lines in the movie, not a lot, let's say, you know, sure. 15. Sure. Uh, but, uh, and, and the director, John Sturgis, when Steve's agent went to him and John Sturgis wanted him in the movie, he'd use uh, Steve in another, in an earlier film. And, 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 and he said, you know, uh, God, he doesn't say much. And, and uh, said the agent and said, Sturgis, he said, I'll give him the camera. Which, you know, so that uh, he'd place the camera so even though Steve wasn't talking, he'd still be there. So what Steve, who was relentlessly, psychopathically competitive, uh, he figured out that what he was going to do was use his hat. So in the at the openings, you know, uh, after uh, the, the famous scene in the movie is where Stephen Yule Brenner, there's a Native American who's died, but they won't let him be buried in the cemetery in the town. So Yule says, "Oh, what the hell? If that's the only problem." So he gets up on the hearse to drive it to the cemetery, and McQueen joins him. All right, so now we have the two stars, Yule, who's a huge star, and Steve, who's just upcoming. And, and, and so what Steve does is he takes off his hat and he scans the town so the sun isn't in his way, but he's using the hat this way and that way. And meanwhile, he also opens the shotgun and he takes one of the shells out and rattles it next to his ear, and he takes the other shell out and rattles it next to his ear. And you can see, Yule Brenner didn't know that any of this shit was going to happen and you can see on screen you were looking at him fiercely angry thinking what are you doing but not interrupting the take and that's the one they use and and throughout the movie you or uh, steve was taking his hat off and fanning himself or looking at the sky or whatever and it got so bad that you'll hired a guy whose sole function was to be behind the camera watching what was happening and if steve started to do it he'd the the guy would step forward and, and interrupt the take and say, Yule, he's doing it again with that damned hat. 
<laughs> Steve McQueen, a jerk and mischievous. You can't, that's a nice combination. And I'm glad you brought up the, the connect, you know, connection also Stallone uh, being recognized, having that same quality because uh, I, I loved in your uh, commentary on first blood mentioning that Sly wasn't that bankable, you know, cause he had what uh, fist, so underappreciated movie and victory it is an underappreciated movie with norman jewison directing and i i i love him in that and also victory is a movie that gets uh not as much yeah. admiration and love especially since it's from john Huston. but where else can you get michael kane stallone pele and brewmeister smith slash ming the merciless max von Sydow? yep <laughs> Uh, it's true. Uh, 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 Sly made some very good early films in addition to the Rocky films, but he had never had a hit in a movie other than Rocky. So he said later in interviews, um, in retrospect, uh, that he considered First Blood the most important movie he'd made because it cemented his his reputation. It made him, you know, durable as opposed with uh, in addition to the Rambo films. So, um, that, you know, it's an interesting uh, way that history, um, you know, looks back at things. And going and flash forwarding to 2019 and Rambo last blood. And you know, as we talked to, as we were talking about earlier, Phil and Jim and Marty on the book and how John Rambo dies at the end of the book. And, of course, he gets to live on cinematically. And do you do you feel that Rambo Last Blood was a fitting end to a character who had originally died but had taken on a life of, of his own outside of the book? I, I don't. It's not my favorite film of the series um, be, for a number of reasons. Um, because the, the, the man who an earlier uh, character and who in earlier films had said the mind is the best weapon does some really let us say not clever things uh for example instead of you know cleverly outwitting the bad guy to find out where the where his relative is he just stomps right up to this guy in front of 200 people and is surprised when he gets the hell kicked out of him and you know there were other ways to do that and and i i you know i know some special uh, operations units that saw the film and were disappointed that it was so strategically not, you know, didn't make any sense to them. And, uh, and moreover, uh, it contradicts elements about his character that had been emphasized in earlier scenes, and especially if we go back to First Blood, where um, we know he was held captive in a, in both in my novel and in the movie, in a pit where they threw garbage on him, and then later, um, when he's uh, in the in the basement of the of the jail, and everything comes at him as he remembers what it was like in that pit, and then later when he's in the cave, uh, which in my novel is a bat cave, much worse than the rats that they use in the film, basically the guy is claustrophobic. He had serious traumas to do with being enclosed, and now he's living underground in caves. Doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I noticed coming up that there's uh, a couple of fan-based ones. Uh, there's a fan film, Rambo fan, fan film, and do you have uh, do you have hope? Pardon, pardon the the phrasing on that one, but do you have hope that that can maybe end, end things a little bit better? 
<laughs> well, no, what is, what is the fan film? I'm not familiar with it. Oh, you're not familiar with it? Okay. Well, th this is the power of IMDb, and uh, it's a pre-production thing. It's just it's Hope, a Rambo fan film. And then, oh, course, I think Ram I, Rambo New Blood. I, I think I know what that is. I, I believe there's a, there's a uh, and, and, and whoever, if it's what I'm thinking, I knew about this. Somebody went back to Hope now. Uh, and there have been many changes. And what they did is they filmed sort of, of uh, scenes from the movie, their version of it, and then it contrasted it with the movie scenes in the movie itself. Now, you know, this is if they were to pay, ask somebody to pay to see this, they'd be in serious violation of the of copyright. But you know, for fun, there's no way you can stop anybody from doing something like that. And I've seen some, you know, some uh, some uh, sections from the film, and it's very clever. Um, and there's a, a wonderful play called uh, Flooding with Love for the Kid um, by Zach Oberson. And it, this was off-Broadway where he was in his living room at telling, as it were, the audience is in his living room with him. And there's a sofa and there's some chairs. And, you know, he's telling the audience what a great... Uh, novel and movie, the the it, first blood is, and then he describes differences. I, I can't believe this was off Broadway. He describes the differences between the novel and the movie, and in doing so, he leaps on the sofas if it's a cliff and things like that. It's really, really very, very clever. So there've been, you know, some some uh, instances where you know people have created something out of the book and the movie. And then we don't want to forget a, a movie called Son of Rambo. And that's spelled R-A-M-B-O-W. It's a deliberately misspelling. It's about uh, uh, some children, some kids, boys in um, England in a, a poor section in the 1980s who have fallen in love with the Rambo character and are basically reenacting scenes from the movies. That's a great movie. I've seen that. It's really good. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Very well done. I was surprised, you know, they didn't have much of a budget, obviously. I was surprised they got the right to, to use cuts from the actual films. So there must have been somebody who said, oh, what the hell, we'll, we'll let them, you know, for a modest amount, we'll let them use this little section or in that little section just because it's a movie that deserves to be made. I, I like to think that that's how the decision happened. Well, yeah. So uh, I just had a quick question. So obviously the, the culture is radically different now than it was in the early 80s. But uh, so if uh, if Rambo was getting made today, or excuse me, First Blood was getting made into a movie today, do you think it would be, do you think it even could get made? And if so, would it, do you think, it, what would it look like? Do you think it would be closer to your, the vision you wrote or further away from it? Well, um, let's use an authority like Quentin Tarantino. Um, Quentin is a huge fan of my novel, and uh, when he was on tour for his novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think more recently when he was on tour for his wonderful book of film criticism called Cinema Speculation, um, that um, people said, well, you know, you, you said you'd only make one more movie, what would it be? And what he said, and he's not serious because he qualifies it, he says, I don't do remakes of movies. 
But if I were to do a remake, and it's basically if here, it would be First Blood. And he would have Adam Driver as Rambo, and he would have Kurt Russell as the police chief. Oh. And then... And then he talked about, he talked about, you know, the, the grittier, um, um, uh, earlier I was, uh, I heard you, some, you know, talking a little bit about the movie and there's nothing about Kent State. There's, there's no contemporary references in the novel or in the movie. It's the plot of the novel was essentially the plot of the movie but it emphasizes the police chief more and of course as and it's more action driven the novel is uh, if that's impossible to imagine and also you know as you note the ending is different um but um now i went off on i i go off on a tangent and i forget where i got started so what what was the topic that got me talking about the well, the, the novel oh I, I was i was just asking if you think that if it that it, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. And then I was talking about Quentin. Well, Quentin knows the film, uh, uh, the novel intimately, and he was actually quoting lines from the dialogue. And he said, you know, he wanted to go back and do a version that was uh, uh, more, more like the book, uh, tougher in a way, in the sense that the that the uh, the 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 action would be much stronger than it is in the in the movie and more like the novel. And uh, so I was, you know, really flattered. And uh, I have no idea if he would do it as a period piece or if he would do it, you know, modernized. And again, we have to emphasize this was him having fun. This was Quentin Tarantino having fun talking about a movie that he would never make. Um, but I, I have to say it really, you know, because I, I adore Quentin Tarantino's movies. And so I had to say that, you know, this, this, this and, and if, if anybody wants to know what he said, uh, just Google Quentin Tarantino first blood there, there, there are many, many, uh, examples of what he said. And I, I'm sure you heard me go, oh my, oh, I'm just in awe in a movie that's never going to be made, but. Adam Driver and Kurt Russell would just be phenomenal. <laughs> and, and I mean, Adam Driver, a Marine veteran himself, what, what are your thoughts on, on if, he, if he were to be cast in the movie Never Made, how do you think he would handle Rambo? Well, uh, no, I, I, you know, I've never, I've never gone down that road. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's difficult for a, for a novelist to imagine an actor in a role because then it, you know, it affects the way the dialogue sounds. I will say this at the very beginning, and we remember now we're going back to the late sixties, early seventies when I wrote the novel. Uh, God, it's hard to believe this is, last year was its 50th anniversary and it's still in print, just amazing. Uh, but the actor I sort of had in mind and then forgot because I didn't want Rambo to talk like this was Chris Christopherson because uh, the, the, in, the move, in the novel, Chris, uh, Rambo has long hair and a beard. He is basically a hippie. He has come back from the war and he's sort of, his personality has been so, he's, he's disaffected as it were. And, and he's, he's, you know, become in a way kind of wild. And one of the reasons he's hassled in the town is he looks like a hippie. Uh, and, you know, Chris Christopherson had that wild and woolly look for a time, uh, both as an actor and, you know, when he, when he was, of course, a great songwriter, singer. I, my mind is just exploding over here with Chris Christopherson in that role. 
Well, and of course, Chris, Chris was, you know, in some Sam Peckinpah films. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's not, you know, uh, we, we can, uh, it's people forget Chris Dodderson had some major movie roles in the seventies. And then of course it goes up to when he was with Barbara Streisand in A Star is Born and he still has the beard and the long hair there. Now, uh, you mentioned Peck and Paw, Wild Bunch, your favorite movie. It is. Wow. It's my favorite wow. film. Yes. How, how does how does that how does a, a film like that wind up as your number one? Well, it, it's a 1969 film, and I was I started First Blood in 1968. Um, and uh, a, a little background: I was then a graduate student at uh, Penn State. I was in the American uh, Literature Program, and I my master's thesis was on Ernest Hemingway, and uh, particularly the style of Ernest Hemingway. Now, I don't write like Hemingway. I don't imitate other writers, but one of the things I took away was Hemingway's determination to write as if a particular subject had never been written about before, which was to say you throw away all the familiar expressions and, you know, and, and if many, any, you, you, you know action books, it, this, this, this terrible phrase, a shot rang out. Now that to me typifies the, the terrible writing that most action movies or most action books have. And shots don't ring out and I have no idea where the heck that expression came from, but to use it as an example of the cliches. And I was thinking, is there a way to do action in a book you know, thinking of Hemingway as if it had never been done before. So I was constantly looking at the action scenes I was writing to, to sniff out any odor of a cliché, uh, to find, you know, just pure ways of doing it. And, and then I saw The Wild Bunch. Uh, and what Sam Peckinpah was doing was the same thing. How do you take the familiar Western uh, and the shootouts and how do you make it as if no Western had ever been made before? Uh, and, and indeed, when when look at Westerns or action movies generally, the watershed is the wild bunch. It's everything up to then and then everything after that in terms of whether the director screenwriter acknowledged is the influence of Peck and Paw, or else goes back to the stuff that was doing being done before the Wild Bunch, and it's just a terrifically important film, particularly when it comes to um, the way action and the characters in an action movie are treated. Yeah, I didn't see that movie until the early two thousands, I think, and I'd seen a lot of action movies before that, but it really was unique. Uh, seeing that and, and, and really kind of kind of uh, well not shocking but but startling in terms of how the violence is presented and and portrayed and just the level of it and uh, the intensity of it and so I can only imagine what it would have been like when it came out. But, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. The 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 uh, in 1969 people were stunned. I mean, people, and of course, some critics, you'll always get this, saying, oh, it's too strong and what's going on here. And, you know, uh, you know, people who, who, whose mind died a long time ago and they're still somehow functioning. Um, but uh, but for, for people at an open mind, my God, what that did. And, you know, any movie that can affect you in that way. And I had a chance to see a 
print of it about five years ago, the uncut version, um, uh, which uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. The critics uh, at the time, it criticized some aspects of the movie and within a week, Warner Brothers had re-edited the film, removing those about 15 minutes of the movie. And you know, why the hell they felt that they could do that just because a few like Time and Newsweek people uh, had said this. And so for many, I, I saw the movie when it, the first day and I went back a week later and it was different. They had cut those scenes and I have felt the effect of not having those scenes. And then it wasn't until years later that the, the full uh, length version was uh, shown. Uh, it, you know, it's the one available on, on Blu-rays now. And, oh, you know, I can always hope for a 4K UHD version. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it uh, so if you were struck by it, you know, in the early uh, of this century, holy cow, you can only imagine what, and, and it affected me when I saw it five years ago. And I'd been, actually, I'd been afraid to see it again um, because I thought, well, maybe it won't hold up. It held up just beautifully. So the Wild Bunch, it sounds like it was one of the first victims of, of a cancel culture before we knew what a cancel culture was. <laughs> well, there were many critics who who were absolutely stunned by it, but it was interesting that the that Warner Brothers, you know, went to and uh, uh, you know to a few of the complaints. And of course, now it's a long movie, and it could be that they felt by cutting fifteen minutes that they'd get another showing. In uh, you know, going back to First Blood, one that movie ran over two hours and. It, its original cut and, and not the one that was shown to, to, to audiences, but just the one that they were, you know, thinking about releasing. And they finally decided that they wanted was a picture that was 96, 97 minutes long because you could every two hours show that movie and the difference between 96 minutes and two hours, you could get the old audience out and the new audience in. And that always seemed to me a great way to run the movie business. And so these long, long, long movies, three hours and more that are being shown, I, I, and you know, under certain circumstances, a long movie, Lawrence of Arabia is, has to be done that way. But basically when you get that long, you can't get, you limit yourself. You're going to get so many showings a day. It affects your box office. So I, I never understood um, the long ones, except in certain circumstances, but 90, you know, when they cut it all down, it was 96, seven minutes, something like that. And, and, you know, the American uh, film market, what they used to do is show films to foreign uh, distributors. And what, what Carolco did, um, I knew the Andy Vanya and Mario Casar pretty well. And what they did is they said, oh, hell, why don't we just show the action? And when they cut down the movie, they discovered they had 56 minutes of action in a 96 minute movie. And that's what they showed to the foreign distributors. And, and all of a sudden, you know, they had a profit even before they showed the movie. See, and I just miss the fact that if you're going to show a three hour movie, I need an intermission. I think we all need an intermission. <laughs> well, and I saw the new avatar. I, I saw the new avatar and I had the intermission. I went to the bathroom twice. So <laughs> <laughs> what well, the, the, and the last, and you're, uh, the last time I remember an intermission was when I saw Malcolm X down yeah. at the theater, the theater on college Ave down in Penn state. So I'm wondering, you probably saw the wild bunch, either the, the one over on short Ridge or, oh, or Heister street, oh. I would guess. God, you're bringing back memories. Yeah, College Avenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where where First Blood was shown. 
uh, when it, you know, when it premiered in, in uh, uh, oh, that's, that's pretty cool that you remember that. I, 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 yeah. Once a Penn Stater, always a Penn Stater. Yeah. And, and as the boys like to remind me here on the show, I'm a homer. That's right. I look out for my Penn State people. It's what I do. So. <laughs> rightly so. Rightly so. And, and, and insert your groans there, Martin Zamora. Go ahead and groan. I don't care. No, no. Continue. Continue <laughs> with your sidetrack. <laughs> I can't resist. I can't resist. Now, I know we we're talking. I'm not sure where, uh, if, uh, when, when you came in with us, David. But, well, well, we were also talking about uh, a recent column from uh, a veteran here on all over the place and a friend of mine from back in L.A., Mark Tapson. And he was uh, his latest column. He's talking about the need for teenage boys to be inspired to read because they just fall off. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a certain time in their lives. And I, I love the fact that, you know, when you were uh, recently on, on the hero show that Christine also produces, and you mentioned uh, that, you know, inspiring you as, as a young writer, you, you could either be a victim of your life or you can yes. be the hero. Yes. And in today's climate where boys aren't really allowed to be heroes, they've kind of cut boys off, uh, you know, cut them off at the knees, being able to be <laughs> the hero of their life. I mean, what what advice would you have as as a writer to to get kids, young boys, and young inspiring anybody to read is the way I look at it, but especially young boys who want to have heroes. They want to, as Mark said, they want to slay the dragon. They want to rescue the damsel in distress. Well, and uh, and let's also, you know, uh, um, uh, young young women, the same thing. I mean, it. I, sure. I understand where you're going with the, with that, but um, you know, I have two grandchildren, uh, uh, boy and and girl. They're actually now young adults. They're 19, and but you know, the thing I've always told them was uh, in, and I, you know, I, I give my my youth as an example. I my father. I'm old enough that my father fought in World War II, and he died. Uh, the day he was a, uh, a a pilot and he was shot down the, the second day of the D-Day operations. Um, and uh, so my mother was unable to support me and have a, and earn a living and she had to put me in an orphanage. And I was in an orphanage for a time and then I, I, she boarded me on a Mennonite farm for a year, a very interesting. Uh, and then eventually she remarried, but the man she remarried, she she then married was didn't like kids and they fought a lot. I used to spend I, when I went to bed as they were fighting. I I put a pillow under my covers and I crawled under the bed and I slept there, and I used to tell stories to myself. Um, and it's interesting. I wasn't the victim of the stories. I was the hero of the stories. I was helping. I was saving other people. And and uh, I, so I, I, you know, I tell my grandkids this, and I say, look, you know, we all have terrible stuff happen to us, but you can be a victim. You can choose to be a victim. And at that, you know, what a terrible thing to have, you know, to have circumstances control you, or else you can be the hero of your own life. And I'm reminded of. Uh, I'll be a professor here. Uh, which I was in the start of uh, Dickens's David Copperfield, whether I have, the, whether I'm the hero of my own life story or only a minor character, these pages will reveal. And, and so basically, uh, it seems to me for a, an authentic life, we should set out to be the main character of our life story, which isn't always the case. In fact, in many cases, the people I talked to, they relegated themselves to minor roles. So um, that's, you know, that's a big part of my personal philosophy. 
And following up on that, David, we were kind of chatting a little bit earlier before the, um, you know, joining the show, that New York Times article that you mentioned about, um, you know, university English departments struggling. Can you tell yes. us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, yes, it, that in today's New York Times print edition, there was an article in the arts section uh, about a professor, former professor now, you know, who was writing about the state of, of, of a literary criticism. And uh, so you, we might think this is a non-starter, even for me, who was a, a professor of American literature for 16 years, uh, but it's actually pretty important. It, 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 the, in the university world, there are fewer each year uh, students going through a BA for English or American or whatever literary studies. And there are even fewer than them in uh, MA or PhD programs. And one reason for the latter is that there are fewer professors, uh, assistant, associate, or full professors, in academia these days, some some uh, universities have actually uh, disallowed becoming a major in either literature or philosophy or history. Well, this is a doomed culture that says you can't be a major in history um, because as we, as I mean, it's been proven again, history repeats itself. And if you're not aware of the history, then you are doomed to be part of what's making it repeat itself. Um, so, um, one of the, one of the problems that's happening in the, in literature departments is that they think they're part of the political science department and they're turning books, they're turning novels or poetry or drama or what have you, they're turning them into, they're teaching those works which are uh, what they feel uh, represent their own politics. And I was just telling my wife this morning about this at Penn State. Uh, I One of my duties was to go around as a graduate student, uh, a senior graduate student, and supervise the teaching that other graduate students were doing. And it struck me, the late 60s now, Vietnam War stuff, um, that they were all, you know, turning them into political science classes. And I, I complained about this. And actually the graduate students and I had a, had a confrontation because they, they were uh, outraged that I would say this. And I just said to them again, you belong in the political science department. And my, my view of the study of literature is that it's an opportunity for us to appreciate, to understand, to learn about the context in which a great work was created and to understand why the author uh, uh, did what the author did at responding to elements in the culture. And I'm not necessarily talking about politics, but my favorite example is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And you cannot appreciate The, the Great Gatsby unless you know what prohibition was. And I used to love when I taught the great Catsby to say, when, what, what was prohibition? Well, they, they didn't know. And then I said, when did it happen? And they had this weird, you know, the time screen. And for the record, it was from 1919 to 1933. The first year in 1919, you couldn't import or manufacture alcohol, but you could sell it. They, they allowed the stores to get rid of their stock. But after that, it was closed down. So here you had, well, you know, that an enormous amount of time and and you know the discussion of 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 
of prohibition then gets you, you into um, the, the rise of organized gangsters and so on. And, you know, you could, and then you talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald and his life uh, and uh, all the significances of it, particularly to do with, um, um, you know, with, with uh, the gay, the, the flapper era, the, 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 the high living of the 20s. You can go on forever using the, the Great Gatsby as a way of understanding history. And for me, history is the big deal, as I just said, because uh, if we, we are not aware of history, we are doomed to repeat it. And yeah, I, I want to bring that in a little bit now with, uh, you mentioned earlier, Quentin Tarantino, when he was off doing his uh, the novel tour on the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I yeah. that's with, without a doubt my favorite Tarantino movie, hands down. <laughs> I, I think Pulp Fiction running a, a, I don't even want to say a close second anymore. I, I just love it, and I, I like and I've always been a fan of the uh, or back in the day I was a fan of the What If comics that Marvel ran, yeah. and just the the What If aspect of how he handled the Manson murders or the lack of Manson murders in yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And you know, what's your take on that in terms of, you know, making like a little fan fiction kind of thing with history, uh, especially since you've been a, a writer of the, the historical thrillers with the Thomas de Quincey stuff. Uh, but your, your take on Quentin doing that. And then also your take on Quentin making a novel out of what was already a very rich and well done film and basically adding bonus scenes within a novel. Yeah. Yeah, so so much to talk about that. Uh, I I agree. Um, uh, uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood must be. Um, it is my favorite of his work. I saw that in theaters. I think twelve times. I could not get enough of that movie. I mean, the depths of it, and, and a lot of people say to me, you know, what depths? Well, they just weren't paying attention, um, you know, to the to the meta, uh, as it were. My 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 daughter said she doesn't want to hear the word meta anymore. So I, I but I can't I can't find another word. But you know, here we have uh, you know a a, a actor uh, Rick Dalton playing you know a a star playing a character in a TV series and the TV series becomes realer than the actors so that at the and near the end when when there when when Rick Dalton is arguing with the the you know the bozo uh, would be assassins in, in their rackety car and and he tells them to get the hell out of there and he's there in his bathrobe with his you know <laughs> His his vat of daiquiri or whatever the hell it is, and and they, they and and they drive away, and one of them says, "You know who that was, don't you?" And you think they're going to say Rick Dalton, but no, there it's the star of the of the goddamn western that they're that they're, and you know, and then she says, "And isn't that what we're fighting? You know, the violence and the hypocrisy, you know, and of course they're just you know they're part of the whole thing, you know. There it's as if somehow." the the character in the in the bounty bounty law uh, western has you know molded them to become the assassins that they want to be i mean it's just so so rich um and uh i, I was lucky I, enough I, to see that movie in 35 millimeter at, yeah at yeah yeah they had 35 mil i'm like ah oh, this is the way hollywood was and oh yeah so many levels uh, on that how sure. on earth did you see that and in 35 millimeter we have one theater here, and, and there, um, it's the at the time it was the Alamo Draft House chain, but they've since become a different uh, company, yeah. Majestic. But they, they yes. still have 
the only 35 millimeter projector in in Arizona. Oh my and, God! And and I, Mar Marty was actually with me. Uh, we saw Jaws in 35 mil a few years ago. Oh uh, my and with, God! And oh. also, and the, the the 50th anniversary we saw in 35 mil Planet of the Apes, the original from 68. I'd be lined up every night. Uh, I mean that. Well, you're just the, in New Mexico. Come on over. I can get you in over the sea. I, I know, you know the people there. We'll get you in. Well, you know, now talking about the Alamo uh, chain uh, before it switched, right? I did a, oh God, in 2016, I was on tour for uh, one of my De Quincey Victorian uh, mystery thrillers, uh, Ruler of the Night. And they set up, uh, they knew I was coming through uh, and they said, well, why don't we do a first blood showing and you can introduce that and then, you know, we'll sell some some Ruler of the Night books. Uh, so, but it wasn't, they were showing a digital version of First Blood, which looked pretty good. Um, but what uh, this led to the conversation about, because the, the, the man who was the manager was was very knowledgeable and he, ta he was talking about the difference between showing a digital Digital version of a movie in the theater, opposed to showing a version. Now we can talk about grain and things like that in the relative, you know, that uh, uh, digital is too slick for me. Uh, and I, I often think that's one reason why people aren't uh, subliminally are not going to movies as much because it doesn't look as good as films. But what he said was the difference for him was what he called the flicker. There's that gap that's imperceptible between each frame of a movie, and it causes uh, what what the, you know a kind of a, sh a un unaware shutter experience. S u s s h u t t e r, and he said that it could be hypnotizing. Now, you can't prove any of this, but I think he's right. And Douglas Trumbull, the great special effects um, director, for in, in his later years was trying to find a way to add flicker to digital, and, and he was never able to get it satisfactorily, or if he did, it just wasn't accepted. But, but I, you know, there is something to do with the grain of, um, of film, the shutter of film, and then I, I you know, I, I can't, uh, oh my God, the, the, I, I'm, I'm in ecstasy even imagining, I did see The Hateful Eight, not, not Quentin's greatest movie, The Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter. A true Ooh. 70 millimeter. Now, yeah. did you, what, what were your thoughts on the Netflix series where the, he expanded it out into chapters? I never, you know, I don't know what it is. I thought, all right, he made the movie. That's the way it is. I'm not brave to go in. Is, is it okay? See, I'm like you. I, Hateful Eight, I like it. It's Tarantino. It's got some good stuff in it. But yeah. it took it to a whole new level when he, when he serialized it. And just yeah. gave it just so much more context and anything that involves, uh, you know, more Kurt Russell. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's another wrong. matter. So are you saying that I should, uh, maybe I should dive into this, that I'm not going to be a fan? Mind you, uh, Quentin supervised it, so I assume that it's, you know, not junk. No, I like I said, it, it just took it to a new, new level for me. It probably bumped it up a, a couple spots in, in the, the Tarantino universe for me. Okay, I'm 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 going to take your advice and do that because uh, maybe it could be hyperbole on my part, but I'm I, I will stick with it. <laughs> right, I'll hunt you down. The uh, now the the because uh, uh, you know things get imprinted in a way that um, I mean, are you aware of the like the way we were? Um, there's a book now about the way we were and about all the controversies 
behind it, all the fighting that went on. And, and that movie was originally uh, three hours and they cut it down to two and uh, because they didn't want to have the, the too much of the blacklist stuff. And, and Barbara Streisand, um, you know, protective as she is, she got the rights to the cut material and it's been in a vault of hers all these years and in and, and uh, soon a 50th anniversary 4k uhd disc has been promised like maybe the end of this month and you know fans of sydney and uh, uh pollock you know are wondering whether or not this will be the reconstituted movie discoveries i, I again it, it's we could probably go on for hours on all this such as the, the, the love of cinema and and and, uh, and music and everything just making things if you can make it better yes but, but you're you're right though things get imprinted in your brain a certain way and then something else is introduced to it and sometimes you don't know which way to go i mean i i think that i'm bringing up planet of the apes again the original cut uh the battle for the planet of the apes the the uh, fourth one in the series where yeah. it was cut where it was cut down for it wasn't as violent and then when they finally released it on blu-ray you got the choice to see the one with the ultra violence in it and that just right. I mean, and i i already liked the movie i thought it was very underrated in, in the series but that just took it to a new level for me well in this in the same way you know going back to rambo and first blood the fourth film well, I, when was that 2007 the one set in what pete you know what used Island, to be called yeah. Uh, and, and anyhow, um, that, uh, Sly and I occasionally talk, uh, we haven't talked in several years now, but occasionally we'll, he'll call me and just say, Hey, you know, I want to catch up and we'll talk maybe for an hour or so. And when he was making what I call Rambo four, it's really called, it's it main it's title is Rambo, but it makes no sense to me because, um, people often call the first movie Rambo and it, it's only confusing, but Rambo four is very clear. Um, he's that coming he's, up with this calling Rocky just he just called it Balboa, so that he was in a mood. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. And it's you know we get the logic, but I, I just for lack of, <laughs> for, for clarity, I call it Rambo Four. He's a very smart yeah. guy, very, very, oh, very absolutely. smart. Oh yeah, and very amusing. You talk to him and you laugh a lot. And uh, anyhow, what he said was that he wanted to go back to. He he was uncomfortable. I heard you earlier talking about the difference between one and two. And he said he was uncomfortable with two and three because in retrospect, they glamorized warfare. And what he wanted to do was a Sam Peckinpah, going back to another theme here, uh, Sam Peckinpah Rambo film. And to do that, he said, and I just had to smile, he said he went back to my novel rather than the movie. Uh, First Blood in order to get the tone of my novel and adapt it into Rambo 4. Um, and um, so, but he was complaining to me that the, uh, that the distributors had cut the movie to emphasize only its action and that he was very pleased to have the full movie as he intended it, Rambo 4 now, for anybody who's, who's trying to catch up here, uh, in a director's cut uh, a, a disc version, and it has significant differences with the with the released movie. Uh, extra dialogue. It has, uh, uh, in, in fact, it has some speeches uh, 
Um, uh, I, in fact, I keep this here because occasionally is, is for interviews like this. But this is a speech from the from the director's cut of Rambo Four. And 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 uh, I wish really that that had been the one that was released. This is the speech. This is Rambo talking to the uh, to the uh, religious uh, the, the the person who wants to go in and and do you know a, a, a good work in in um, in uh, uh, what used to be called Burma. This is the speech. Peace is an accident. When the killing stops in one place, it starts in another. But that's okay because you're killing for your country. But it isn't your country who's asking. It's a few men up top who want it. Nobody wins and everybody in the middle dies and nobody tells the truth. Huh. That's great. It's it, and that's that's the tone of that fourth film. It's a you know it hasn't got the respect that the ending the climax is far too long. Um, but on the other hand, it has Rambo with that big you know advanced version of the machine gun in the Wild Bunch, uh, where, where Rambo is now William Holden at the end of the Wild Bunch. And um, but you know that there's a lot in that movie that was that no critic ever picked up on. I mean the anti-war the. The bitterness about the whole thing uh, that that Sly put into it. So anyway, uh, you know, talking about different versions of the film and how sometimes the film gets improved. I want to look that one up because I mean I liked it when I saw it in the theater, but it, it didn't stick with me, especially the way that I, uh, the comeback they did. I, I mentioned with Balboa. I like how he yeah. did that. Silly him fighting, you know, the the much younger guy and holding his own, but it brought back the tone of the original Rocky. Yeah, and, and enjoyed that, and, and, I and that bled well into what I I, I love what uh, has been done with the Creed movies and continuing that character the way that Rocky was intended and just and oh, leaving that universe the way that it should be. He was brilliant in Creed. Uh, I, I mean, it was stunning to see how good he was. And again, you know, this goes back to the Steve McQueen, you know, principle. You know, know what you can do in front of the camera and let the camera appreciate you. And I mean, you know, that's pure movie acting. And uh, I want to ask you, as as an author, as, as we uh, as we wind down here on, on this particular episode, David, I wanted to ask you, you know, what author? Well, you mentioned, you know, you, you would write your own stories, you know, you know uh, with what was going on with you and your at, at the time in your life. But was there any particular author that had a, an impact on you, on your style and everything? And you know, actually, did you have someone? Well, not at, not at the time, but but uh, um, movies were my my thing. I uh, it because my in my home, my mother and stepfather didn't encourage reading. You know, I I used to go to the. I just somehow felt peace at least by going to the library, and I learned to read a lot there. Libraries are wonderful, and I contribute a lot to them. Um, but uh, when I was seventeen, I had an epiphany. Uh, with a, a sort of a movie, a TV series I've talked about a lot called Route 66, about two young men in a Corvette convertible 
uh, traveling across the United States, and the, the show used to say, in search of America and in search of themselves. And um, the show was filmed entirely on location in whatever place the scripts called for these two young men touring America to show up in and get jobs. And it was really a Smithsonian um, uh, uh, kind of profile of America from 60 to 64. Um, but for me, it was the scripts, and they almost two-thirds of them were written by a man named Sterling Siliphant, S-I-L-L-I-P-H-A-N-T. And when I was 17, I wrote Sterling a letter saying, I want to be you. And he <laughs> guided, I did, and he guided, he wrote me back this wonderful two-page single-spaced letter, which I have still a frame next to my desk. And, uh, and, and he guided me, and over the years, you know, we kept in touch, and then, and then finally met in 1985, and uh, he asked me what I was doing, and I told him about a book called The Brotherhood of the Rose, which is another one of my books that has really had good luck for me. And he said, it sounds like it should be a miniseries, and the next thing I know, he'd arranged for NBC to buy the book. Uh, and he was the executive producer on it, and I wrote four drafts of the script, although uh, another writer, Guy Waldron, wrote the later draft and got the credit. And um, uh, anyhow, Sterling, um, I don't write like Sterling, but what he did, because, I mean, among other things, he, he did write novels, but among other, you know, he was primarily a screenwriter, Oscar winner for In the Heat of the Night for adapting John Ball's novel. And, uh, I mean, just a wonderful person. I, 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 he was like a father to me. And, and, you know, his enthusiasm and his determination and his, 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 one of the things he was determined to do was blend action with ideas. Not, not, you know, so they were shoved down your throat and he wasn't political, not that kind of idea, but, mm -hmm. but uh, I remember one Route 66 script where, which is about a Nazi war criminal who's hiding on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, and it was filmed on the oil rig. Really cool. Uh, and, and, uh, and Lou Ayers plays a Mossad agent who is going on the rig to try to find the guy. And he turns to the two, controllers of his who are sending him and uh, who, who have bit parts. Uh, one of them is Ed Asner. Uh, and, you know, you say, hey, wait a minute, that's Ed Asner and he doesn't have any lines. And and uh, and uh, and Lou Ayres says to him, have you read Marcus Aurelius lately? Do you remember what he says about revenge? <laughs> and I thought, holy cow, and I'm 17 watching this, and I, you know, so the world opened for me. So Sterling, you know, is one of, you know, is always with me in that determination to try to, you know, be exciting. If I, if I can be, I don't want to be presumptuous, um, but, you know, to add action and to add that lower depth, as it were, uh, which First Blood has, I believe, you know, it's, there's no, no speeches in it, but you just feel you know, that the futility of these two people who refuse to work together and what happens because of it. Uh, you know, the, the novel doesn't need the speeches. It, you know, it's the, the novel says it in its action. Um, so, um, you know, Sterling is with me a lot. Still, he's dead. He's died in 1996. Um, but he, I still think of him a lot. And my, my follow-up to that is always is, you know, which of your novels would you have wanted them to read first? But you, you already answered it with, I think, The Brotherhood of the Rose. And I, I like that he was able to, to get that rolling in the right direction for you. He was, uh, you know, and, and again, 
you know, since you're giving me the opportunity, people who aren't familiar with my work, you know, they say, well, what would you read? And so Brotherhood of the Rose is a good example, uh, apart from First Blood, which is, you know, what we've been assuming people know, at least as a movie. But, you know, if you like action, the book has four times the action that the movie does. Um, and and um, Brotherhood of the Rose, uh, in those days, in 1984, um, espionage novels were either in the UK tradition, heavily laden with real spy stuff, or else, uh, as in, like John Le Carre, or else in the American version, as Robert Ludlum, who had a lot of action, but his tradecraft, he didn't know one end of a spy from the other end of a spy. I mean, it's laughable when you analyze the tradecraft, but Ludlum had all the energy. And, and uh, as it happened, my agent at the time represented Robert Ludlum. And I thought, you know, it might be interesting if you took Ludlum and blended him with Le Carre, and you'd have something brand new. And and so in, in Brotherhood of the Rose, the, 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 the trade craft is, is very, very accurate. It is the way spies operate, uh, but it also has that first, first blood action in it. So that's, you know, a book I recommend. And then a, a novel of mine called Creepers, which is about what happens in an abandoned hotel uh, at night for eight hours. And uh, it, uh, uh, urban uh, explorers, uh, I don't know if anybody is familiar with that term, but it's a big, big movement in which people who are history and architectural enthusiasts and, uh, and want to go into old buildings that have been abandoned and check them out. And, and this is what happens in an old hotel. It's going to be a movie. It's been filmed and they're busy in the, in the post-production now but it'll be a movie sometime this year, Creepers. And then the other one is Murder is a Fine Art, which is my Victorian um, mystery thriller series, uh, heavily, heavily researched. And, you know, the idea was to try to make people believe they were really there. So those are the, you know, the four that I, you know, pushed the hardest. And I, I know uh, I, I almost forgot to talk about, I, I mentioned it early on before you, you were with us, but uh, I recently uh, fi finally got around to your uh, your issue that you wrote for Wolverine. And oh, yes. Part of, part of that trifecta <laughs> that you did with Captain America, Spider-Man, and of course, Wolverine. And I've been a Wolverine nut since I first read him back when, uh, the, uh, what, X-Men 128, I believe, was my first one, right? Right as the... Oh, wow. The... Uh, the brother, not the brother, yeah, uh, the, 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 the brotherhood. Uh, no, the Hellfire Club is right when I came in with yeah. uh, the Wolverine, and I love what you did with him and uh, just stripping him back, stripping Wolverine back to his his feral, you know, alone or his animal nature, and which was very indicative to me of the absolutely brilliant four issue miniseries that uh, Frank Miller did with Chris Claremont. And you know, well, as, as, a, as a native Canadian, I mean, just taking that Wolverine <laughs> character, how, how, what, what was that like for you to, to dive in and, and do a Wolverine issue? Well, first of all, because of the Canadian angle, uh, and I was raised in Canada, I, I have dual citizenship. I'm an American citizen mm -hmm. now uh, since 1993, uh, but I am also a Canadian citizen. And uh, and you, the American government allows you to do that with certain nationalities uh, uh, for trade reasons and things like that. Uh, uh, but uh, nonetheless, you know, I was raised there and I have my affinities there from my youth. And so I... I, I, I jumped at the chance to, to do a Canadian 
you know, action uh, kind of thing. I said in the Rocky Mountains, and and I, I in my script for the issues, um, I I I did or a single. I guess it's a single issue. I told I I I it says in my instructions to the artist, to, you know, they can take them or leave them, but they do like instructions. And I said, make sure on that first big panel we have a. A Canadian flag on the wall, uh, so <laughs> yep. I, so I thought that was fun. But the you know a lot of my approach to writing is what is the core here? What is the absolute core? And in terms of Wolverine, he's part animal, he's part human being. And so what I wanted to do was put him in a situation where he had to choose which half of him he would be most faithful to if it came down to that. And the action in the story. Uh, leads him to say that I'm sorry I'm a human being I prefer to be an animal and you backed him into a cave and just oh just one, one simple like I, I'm a Wolverine goon to the I remember back when they were going to cast uh, De Niro in a film adaptation or possibly even Michael J. Fox because of, he, uh, because he was Canadian and he was short I'm like really that's what you're going to do for him <laughs> well, Jim shooters, shoot, shooters bullpen. Oh, that's, that's how old I am. And remembering all these things with Wolverine and the X-Men. So I'm glad yeah. they finally came up with their own <laughs> stuff. So De definitely David, thank you so much for, for spending time with us. We, producer Christine, I'm sorry. We went over our half hour that we talked about. We were going to do in the new year. We're, we're having, I, David, I had so much fun and uh, you know, and I, the, uh, the offer is, is definitely available. If you ever want to, I'll, I'll have Christine keep you abreast of what's going on with sure, the 35 sure. millimeter stuff out here, but well, yeah. And we'll see what happens with creepers when it comes out. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a, a fun movie. The script by Steven Susco is, is a, a horror a writer veteran of movies is very, is worked well. I, you know, we'll see what's on the screen and the director, Mark Klasfeld is a music video director who's worked with people like Mariah Carey and um, and uh, uh, Britney Spears and so you know my hope is that he'll bring a you know a kind of music video style to the film uh, and you know uh, that uh, and, and they're adding more than 500 visual effects to it I assume partly because it, it, the movie has to be in darkness um, but I you know who, who knows but you know it's it's it, it's a it has a chance to be a movie movie so I'm I'm hopeful. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that one once they finally get that one out to us. And uh, again, David Morell, thank you so much for joining us. Whether you're a Penn Stater or not, I enjoyed having you on the show. So it was All an right, absolute thank pleasure. You. Thank you. It was fun to talk about movies. All over the place. That that's us, folks. So thanks again, always for tuning in, David Morell. Thank you for stopping by our, our little uh, part of the fun sanity world, and we'll be back with you soon. Jim, Marty, Christine, as always, thanks for making this as fun for me as I hope it was for you. Take care, everybody. We'll see you and listen to you soon on All Over the Place. <laughs>